This call is being recorded. Welcome to the Royer Cooper Opportunity Fund update call. Uh, <clears throat> this is our second call featuring how to start an opportunity fund. And we are going to be joined by Brian Vargo, uh, fund counsel here at Royer Cooper, <clears throat> Layla Vaughn, tax counsel here at Royer Cooper, as well as uh, from Birthday Capital, Jake Ryder and Maureen Minardi. Um, hey, Brian. Maureen is on. Uh, we're here as well. We're very yeah. excited. Brian, um, Jake, Jake and I are on. Good morning, okay. Brian. And, and Jake, and Jake Good morning. Is, we're very excited. Um, if you have questions during the call, you can feel free to email myself at dcoello at rccblaw.com. And uh, with that, I'll turn it over to my colleague, Leila Vaughn, to kick off the call. Thank you all for joining. Please begin with questions. So um, we did some of the base, the tax basics. We covered those last week. And if you missed that, we can give you a recording. Uh, you can request that from Dustin. <clears throat> so we're not going to re reiterate the, the basics. But um, <clears throat> sorry, just to give a brief tax background, what we're talking about is investors who are triggering gain and who are going to be looking to reinvest uh, those proceeds, the gain portion of them, in a qualified opportunity fund in order to get some deferral and exclusion benefits. And what a qualified opportunity fund is, is an investment vehicle organized as a partnership or corporation. And the way you qualify is by self-certification to the IRS. And that happens uh, with the filing of the first partnership or corporate return. Um, you know what? You have to be investing in qualified opportunity zone property, business property, really, to not to qualify, but in order to um, operate as a qualified opportunity fund. And, and I'll get to what happens if you don't meet the asset test in a moment, but. That test is that 90% of your assets must be in qualified opportunity zone business property on the average of two testing dates. And for a calendar year fund, that's June 30th and December 31st. So you don't have to be at 90% on both of those dates, but the math needs to work out that you get to 90% when you average um, you know, the qualified opportunity zone assets over the total assets of the fund on those two dates. And the qualified opportunity zone property can be a direct business interest or it can be interest in partnerships or corporations that, that operate qualified opportunity zone businesses. Um, we have noticed that there are some differences for the for that test um, when you operate using direct assets versus assets in another entity. Um, it's a little bit complex to get into for this structure, but um, it can really affect substantial improvement when, when you're looking at assets that are leased. Um, so that's, that's a little bit complex for today, but know that that's an issue out there. Um, 
As I mentioned, you can, in theory, not meet this test without failing to be a qualified opportunity fund, but the, the problem with that is you're hit with a penalty, um, and that's a monthly penalty. And the, the way that penalty is calculated is that it is the applicable federal rate plus 3% times the amount by which 90% of the assets in the fund exceeds the assets of qualified business assets. Um, so you can imagine that very quickly you've done worse than lose all qualified opportunity fund benefits for your investors, and instead you've just lost all of their money to the IRS. So that's a, a pretty significant penalty, but it's also good to know that you don't disqualify your qualified opportunity fund just by failing to meet the test by a small amount. Um, so, you know, if you're if you're at 89% of of your assets on the testing dates, you may still be in pretty good shape. Um, another issue to be thinking about as a qualified opportunity fund is that there's some real timing issues here. So an investor who triggers gain has 180 days to reinvest that. And you do have some investors who have unrecognized gain and, you know, they're sitting around waiting for the right opportunity to trigger that. Or maybe they weren't even thinking about triggering it until they heard about the qualified opportunity zone benefits, but there are others who actually sold something earlier this year and now they have a ticking clock and they're looking to reinvest that, you know, potentially pretty quickly. So, um, you know, I have a question for Jake and Maureen on that subject, which is that, you know, in those circumstances where the investor has already triggered the 100, they've already triggered the gain, so the 180-day reinvestment period is, is you know, perhaps is underway or perhaps even getting close to coming to a close, it seems like a substantial hurdle for some types of fund structures. Um, it, for example, if you have a fund, you know, I normally see funds that draw down on capital commitments. Is there a way to, to do that in this context or is it too much of a, a hurdle and a burden to, to deal with investors who have to put their money in, um, you know, all at once with the 180-day period coming to a close? I think that um, trained, trained narrowly that way, um, that's a hurdle. Um, typically, the way we're looking at these transactions uh, slash fund in the opportunity zones are ahead of time, and we're we're planning the investment in the opportunity zone. And we'll get this later on your your agenda, I think. But we're looking at transactions that we look to close three to six to maybe nine months from now. So we're, we're we're identifying the sites first. We want to make sure that the investments actually make sense for our our own capital and our investors' capital, and then we're overlaying the benefits of what we view as 
really a couple of pieces of their tax benefit, right? You've got the the rollover, which if if you can, and I can talk about the narrative that's out in, in the guidelines now about layering and the timing with the drawdowns, but I think our view is that those guidelines aren't regulations yet, and if they work and you can invest into the fund, into the land piece, if it's a real estate piece, and then layer in subsequently capital calls for improvements or development dollars, that may be a workaround. I just don't think we have enough clarity into the final legs as to how those will work and how they're treated. But in answer to the question of the timing with some pre-planning um, and identifying the right zone with the right economics and the right project, there are two pieces to the tax gift here from the government, right? One is the rollover gain, and the second is the cumulative effect of the sheltered coupons, and then the accretion of the value from day one through the whole period of year 10, none of which is taxed. So even if you don't roll the gain, and if you like the investment on its face value, you're gonna have a tremendous, not just deferral, but permanent deferral of the accretion of the value of the asset. So in short, yeah, 180 days is a little bit of a jam, but with some planning, and if you're working with, I mean, we're working with, just as our platform, we work with a number of operators that have identified sites early, have developed development plans around those sites towards the end of this calendar year into probably June of next year, we would have hoped to close and expect to close at least three of those transactions with our capital and our investor capital. So I, I don't, I mean, this isn't a public policy statement, but I, I don't know that 180 days under the circumstance of a little bit of tax planning and thoughtfulness is um, egregious. I mean, we look at this as just an incredible opportunity. Yeah, that's a, it certainly is a great opportunity. I think, um, I think it's, it becomes, you know, a, an issue for inv potential investors who triggered gain and didn't realize that, that the qualified opportunity fund benefits were available until, you know, more recently. So if somebody triggered their gain in March and then they heard about the qualified opportunity zone this summer, they're in a bit of a bind, but I, I think you're right that there are a lot of investors who can just see this as an opportunity they have gained that they haven't recognized yet, and they're more flexible and able to take advantage of um, of the opportunity and invest in funds that are really well thought out and well planned. Um, so I'd like to... I mean, one of the risks with, with, that, with that jam... I'm sorry, I was just going to just follow on. I mean, one of the risks, I think, speaking as an investor, but also as a as a fiduciary for other investors, I mean, you know, the, the thought of 
triggering a gain and then trying to find something at the last minute to save on the tax, just to state the obvious, could lead easily lead someone down the path to putting their money in a loss position in a deal that may or may not be well thought out. So there's, I mean, you know, if someone's in a time bind, there's a, there's a 1031 and go out and grab a credit lease. Now, that's not a perfect world. That's a deferral. But, you know, that's probably a better execution in terms of safety of capital than running around and trying to find an opportunity zone or opportunity zone fund. Um, and then magically, you know, hoping that's a good deal without the time right. to think through what, yeah, anyway. And to your point about it being a potential loss position, you know, if you take your qualified if you take your original gain and invest it in a qualified opportunity fund, and you turn around and lose all that money, you still owe tax in 2026. Right. So that's a pretty big bummer. Uh, so, so I mean, our, our, our premises start with the premise that it's if it's a good deal and meets your risk-return parameters, and then overlay right. the tax piece as opposed to starting with a tax piece and then hoping it's a good investment opportunity. Because I mean, it, every one of these sites isn't gonna be magically a, a tremendous investment opportunity. So, right. you know, think back to 86 and the tax, you know, the, the, the tax laws and, you know, the four for one losses and five for one losses and, you know, not, those proved to be in retrospect, not a lot of those weren't great real estate investments. Yeah, yeah, it has to be a good investment. Otherwise, the tax benefits are going to be very little consolation. Um, <laughs> so, Brian, what are some other considerations that uh, you know one should have in mind when launching a qualified opportunity fund? Obviously, it has to be a good. You have to be in making good investments. But what else are we thinking about? As Jay pointed out, yeah. well, in, in structuring an offering interest in one of these funds in, in some ways will be very similar to other types of private funds. Uh, first, you'll, you'll structure and offer the interest to avoid registration of the offering under federal and state security laws. Uh, and that typically means you're making a private offering under Regulation D, Rule 506, to accredited investors. And you'll also want to structure the fund to ensure that the fund itself isn't subject to registration under the Investment Company Act of 1940. So you, you'll limit the number of investors to fewer than 100, or uh, you allow only qualified purchasers um, into the fund. And I can get into the weeds on those requirements a little later in the call if there's time and interest. Um, I mean, a couple of observations right off the top. Qualified uh, opportunity fund investors with significant capital gains to invest are likely to be in credit investors. And they may be qualified purchasers as well, so these funds are uh, fit the bill there. Um, for some uh, fund sponsors or prospective fund sponsors that don't have uh, a, a, a stable of in investors at the ready to make one of these investments, one consideration might be uh, to actually take advantage of the opportunity under certain conditions to use general solicitation to attract investors to your fund. Um, and I've seen a couple of funds out there already um, that are trying to take advantage of that. Um, but you know, the, the fund structure and the offering also need to address the particular tax requirements that, that uh, you just mentioned, Layla. 
uh, including the 180-day requirement, the asset measurement test, of course, the limited purpose. Um, so the, the, the documents and, and the offering strategy will change a little bit. And uh, before I get into the weeds on any more regulatory issues, I, I'd like to get G Jake and Maureen back into the conversation here because I'm interested in seeing you know, what your thinking is as ter in terms of the challenges that you face in trying to put together a fund given the tax requirements and what you know, emerging structures and terms um, you're thinking of or, or seeing to address those. We're just, it's, 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 I'll let Maureen jump into this, but the, the quick answer, Brian, is that we're actually taking one of our existing funds and simply adding this, this investment strategy into uh, the fund, uh, whether it's going to be as a sidecar um, or simply as um, an added strategy to a fund, uh, we're laying, um, these investments, each of which, of course, as you talked about, is a fund in itself into our fund structure with our existing investor base in one, in one of our funds. So it's, it's, it's probably going to be much more complicated than I just described, but that's, that's what we're working on. So we have, we have, we have ourselves and our investors that are very interested in these opportunities. We have operators working on the transactions on the other side, um, and we expect to close into those transactions, in those zones, into those deals that we like with our existing uh, investor pool, or you know, obviously if other investors want to join. Um, but we're we're ready made as we speak, so we don't have to run around and panhandle. Uh, around a specific investment strategy. That's really not our style. Right, and we're spending a lot of time um, getting ourselves educated. I mean, as you said, there is not, not a lot of guidance from the IRS on this, and, and because of the newness of it, we don't want to get into a position that we, um, we don't know the implications. So we are educating ourselves. We are pushing a lot of our investments for the end of this year and the beginning of next, so we can see as more guidance comes out that we are properly um, educating our investors and our sponsors to make sure that um, um, as the guidance becomes more clear that we that we have everything covered. Uh, if you can, can you can you shed a little more light on the process of identifying um, QOZ opportunities? Uh, oh, sure. Finding particular so, challenges because, because in doing that? Well, yeah, I mean, because, because we, uh, you know, as a strategic platform, we're working with operators that um, are obviously very experienced in whatever asset class and whatever geography they're operating in and what we're doing and working in hand in hand with those operators um, are underwriting the sites that have been identified um, and tied up those sites and as the regs become more certain 
Um, we're, I mean, so we're working under the guidelines just like everyone else is with what we hope mm -hmm. are the best, you know, accounting and legal minds, many of whom are actually working in Washington uh, on this bipartisan tax um, change. So the census we're working with is, is seven, eight years old, right? So what what is viewed as an opportunity zone from the perspective of the federal government being potentially an edgy neighborhood may seven years hence not be as edgy. So we're focused on working with our operators in in opportunity zone real estate development or value add locations to work through the underwriting, the economics, the approvals, if we need approvals, not meaning the tax approvals, but you know the use approvals, density, that type of thing, so that when we're ready to close into those deals that our operators have found, we've looked at, we'll be ready with our investors to put the capital into those deals. So it's really, it's really no different than how we operate across the country now. It's just the overlay of the new regs or the gift of the government or from a public policy standpoint as articulated, you know, a way to put capital that may or may not have gone into certain zones, much like the KOZ, right? Some time ago, although that was a different, different limited period of time. Which we were also yeah. very involved in. So I, I don't know if that refines or helps to answer your question. It's really yeah, not a change in strategy. It's really an overlay of a tax strategy over a business plan that we've you know been operating on for um, seven or eight years. That's that's great, Jake. And just to just to weigh in on time, um, we're a little bit over the twenty minutes, and uh, and that was some great content. But we're starting to get some questions from the audience. And uh, and we'd love to um, get that conversation started. Um, so I guess one one question is, you know, we've gotten uh, here at Warrior Cooper, and I'm sure you all have too, you know, separate from perhaps a side pocket and an existing fund, um, people who who really are prioritizing some of the tax benefits, and and uh, trying to balance, um, you know, achieving those tax benefits with uh, with starting or or investing into a fund that doesn't quite know the rules yet. So I guess you know is, is Verde thinking about um, whether there's an opportunity to to open a new fund specifically focused on this strategy, and uh, you know if so, what what kind of time frames and and what kind of things are you thinking about in that respect? We are uh, opening um, an existing fund um, that is predicated upon um, it's a deal by deal. Fund. Uh, there's no connectivity between the fund, uh, the deals, um, and we're opening that existing fund. In fact, we're on our way to New York now to talk to a large family office. But um, we um, would be adding people or families that um, fit our culture and our chemistry from an investor standpoint, risk return hurdles into um, an existing fund, and then and would have a follow-on fund probably starting next year, depending on how robust. Um, not the not the demand for 
the tax benefits are, I think everybody's talking about it and it, it's, it's the new buzz, but mm -hmm. staying disciplined to making sure that we're underwriting and, and we're, we're in the wealth preservation business. not in, So we're, we're taking our same discipline approach um, and investors have, have voiced an interest in this. We as investors personally, uh, as principals of the firm, love this. We just want to make sure we don't um, we don't get so excited about the tax piece that we lose sight of the discipline of the underwriting piece. So the answer is, of course, um, we um, are adding uh, interested investors, qualified investors that that we feel good about and they feel good about us, um, both in an existing fund and a fund a follow-on fund uh, that we would be looking at and are talking about for probably the first quarter of next year. Yep, and we've got uh, we've got a number of investors on the phone who who have been interested in in you know uh, quality real estate investments that that do or do not include opportunity zone benefits. So can you talk a little bit about um, you know from Verdi's perspective who who an ideal investor uh, and a client that you'd like to deal with and and you know put into one of your funds? Um, most of our investors tend to be. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm not talking about the institutional offshore or domestic pension capital we invest, but most of the family office and wealthy individual types um, uh, tend to be um, somewhat informed, if not experts. You know, they built they built businesses or they inherited businesses or they're working and have made a lot of money and have some liquidity, and they're looking for a balance in their portfolio of real estate, uh, whatever that percentages, 10%, 30%, whatever. Um, and, you know, they're, they're, they're looking for, um, you know, fund operators, you know, that aren't, aren't structured in a way that have, you know, dramatic fees and are principled by people that uh, have spent careers in the real estate and real estate capital business. Um, and, our, our true fiduciaries, I mean, really understand or hope we understand the real estate business and operate with the best operators and have track records that are, are strong track records. So, you know, I, I guess from an investment standpoint, we're looking for informed, if not experts, right, informed investors that have some ability to discern, um, you know, an institutional fund structure that uh, may or may not benefit them and certainly will benefit the fund operators or the operators. I mean, for example, we don't, we're a single promote model. We invest alongside our investors. So we're not making any money unless our deals are making money. So after 40 something joint ventures over the last, you know, like I said, eight years, and then, you know, iterations of careers going back 30 years, we're, we're pretty good at, identifying people both on the operating side that you know we've grown up in the business with and people on the investor side that you know we feel good about and they feel good about us so we we look for what kind of risk return parameters those investors have and we look for real alignment of the investor with ourselves and our other investors and our op and our operating partners and and so far that's that's been a very good uh, chemistry a good mix 
Yeah, that's, that's true. Y'all have a, uh, <laughs> a very, very good reputation in the marketplace for being uh, high-quality fund managers. Um, with that, I don't, I don't believe there's any other questions pending from the audience. Uh, thank you all for for dialing in. Um, we'll have a special encore of this call next week for for uh, participants who who were not able to participate in light of in light of Yom Kippur or any other reason. So um, please feel free to. Uh, to forward our invitation to other people that that may be interested in learning more about opportunity funds and specifically, you know, how a how a real life fund manager might think about these opportunities for their clients. Um, we'll send around the recording. We have another call on October 10th, uh, really focusing more on the real estate side, on how a developer might look at this uh, this program and how they can monetize and benefit from it as well. So thank you all for uh, for attending. Thank you. Specifically to Jake and Maureen for for uh, taking some time to to shed light on how they've thought about this program, and of course Brian and Layla here. And uh, please dial in again. Have a good Wednesday, everybody. Thanks, Brian, Layla. Have an easy fast. Thanks, Jake, Maureen.